back to Revelation 6, the fourth seal. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living creature say, Come, and I heard, I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. Pause there. Uh, same verse that we already looked at. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Revelation or Matthew 24, 6 and 7. Back to Revelation 6, the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is Matthew 24. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. On to the next seal. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Again, Matthew 24. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. We read that. We see the earthquakes here in the sixth seal. Then later on it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will they do when the wood is dry? That last one was from Luke 23 which is Luke's account of that same section. And then one last verse from Matthew 24. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay. The reason I wanted to compare this to Matthew 24 is there's some clues in Matthew 24 that really... I'm going to actually, today, a little ambitious, it's going to go faster than it'll seem at first, because I'm going to start with this first view, the preterist view, actually technically partial preterist. Um, The preterist view is that the vast majority of Revelation is being talked about the first century, the vast majority. If somebody said that they believed all of it, then they would be a heretic because they would say Christ returned and everything's put right, um, which is obviously not the case. So basically, when people say preterist, almost everyone means partial preterist. But I'm going to start with that view um, and just kind of talk about it. And I want you to just remember again what we're talking about, that the people in the first century went through 
great suffering. And there's some historical examples I'm going to give. But we want to remember then and now who's in control, Christ. And just as they were crying then, come back, Lord Jesus. That's what we still cry today. And we're longing for the same thing, that we're united in our experience of salvation in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, obedience in Christ, suffering in Christ, and then longing for him to come. The reason I want to go through some of these details is I thought about just giving one view. Um, This is what I think is the best view. But I really wanted you to get appreciation for the difficulty of coming to how to interpret some of these passages and also the challenge and the sincerity which people really want to follow the Lord and come to different opinions. So I'm going to start with this one because... um, I think it's I think it's the best one to start with, um, and it'll go. It's going to go a little bit long, and then the others will go a lot quicker. But basically, what happens a lot of times when people interpret this passage is they look at all the seals and they decide. Well, I think, depending on their view, I think this first seal is talking about this and this and this and this, and they all have things that really fit, um, and they all seem like wow. I can really see why you would think that's the first seal. For this per- first view, most people that are preterists think that. This is talking about the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that's why I'm connecting it to Matthew 24. That there's several clues in Matthew 24 that Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But you can see the similarities here between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, as we read. It talks about basically all the same things. War, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, signs in the heavens like uh, stars, uh, sun going dark, things like that. All these things that it talked about, there's an overlap. But it seems pretty clear that Matthew 24 is talking about partially the siege in Jerusalem. And so they say, see, this is evidence, this is a clue that many of these things are fulfilled at that time. Um, that it's Jesus was giving this to warn them, but it's also to teach us. Um, not that we can't take anything from this. So I'll give you some examples here. Almost all these come from Josephus, which I don't know, you may or may not know who Josephus is. He was just a historian that wrote um, about the time around when Jesus lived. He wrote about the siege of Jerusalem and his destruction. He was, um, we still have his writings today. You can buy it and read it. And so I'm going to quote a lot from him um, just because he's one of the historians that's, he's not a Christian. Um, He was kind of an overlap between Jewish and Roman. And so I'm going to quote a lot from him. Um, Again, combining Revelation 6 and Matthew 24. Okay, the first two seals I'm going to summarize as war. Um, There's there's some subtle differences and there's some different opinions, but I'm just going to summarize it for the sake of simplicity as war. And when Jerusalem was sieged in 70 AD, this is what this is what Josephus says, and you can see this is definitely some serious bloodshed here. Judas, the son of Judas, one of Simon's officers in charge of the city, city's towers, called together ten of his most faithful men and proposed they turn over the tower to the Romans before they were killed themselves. Then Judas called down to the Romans to offer them the tower, and his offer was at first ignored. But just then, just as Titus and his men approached, Simon took the tower and killed Judas and his men in Titus's sight. 
So the reason I brought this up is this gets at several different layers of this bloodshed. So what happens is Titus, uh, who later becomes emperor is of Rome, is surrounding Jerusalem with armies. And there's these towers, and there were a problem for the Romans trying to take over Jerusalem. And some of the people were like, let's let them in. Let's let, we don't want to all die. Let's just let them in. And so they decide to do that. Come on in. You know, uh, We're going to let you in. And they didn't believe it at first. And eventually, when they did, by that time, the other Jewish people realized, oh, they're going to let the Romans in. Let's kill them. And so not only is, are the Romans coming to kill, there's infighting. There's kind of like a somewhat of a civil war between the Jews inside uh, Jerusalem at that time, where Jews are killing Jews, you know, who disagree on how we should handle this. And so not only are they surrounded, just like Luke said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you'll know that, you know, some of these things are happening. Um, We see in the first sign, you know, a conqueror coming, but then we see in the second seal, we see that their people are going to slay one another, that a red sword was given. And in one way, that's true from the Romans, but it's also true kind of a civil war in, in some ways. Not, not a full civil war, but there's infighting among the Jews. And so all this is to say, I hope you could see that somebody would see this like, oh, yeah, this sounds exactly like the siege of Jerusalem, and, and they would connect those things. Not only that, the third seal is talking about a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So... Um, Food becoming high-priced. Here's another quote here from Josephus uh, that is about the siege of Jerusalem. Those left behind were engaged in a constant search for food. They're talking about the people left in Jerusalem at this time. As were the zealots who searched the city's houses. Many of the people sold everything they had for one measure of wheat or barley and then locked themselves inside their houses to eat. The more powerful of the city still had more than enough food, but the weaker were dying daily. Children stole food from their fathers, mothers from their dying infants, and zealots used horrible tortures to force people to give up their hidden food. And there's actually a lot more, and I tried to choose one that wasn't so graphic because there's some seriously sad stories here, but the idea is this. Commentators basically say the oil and the wine is talking about the rich, that the rich have you know, luxuries at this still, but the poor are struggling to even get a daily meal. And that's really what Josephus describes. Again, Josephus is not a Christian at all. He's not writing from a Christian perspective. He's not trying to prove any of these prophecies, but they fit very well. Not only famine, this, uh, this famine at this time, um, the next one is death. And there was lots of people dying in Jerusalem at this time. Josephus says the number of perishing in the siege was 1.1 million, most of them Jewish, but not from Jerusalem. Many of the victims had come to Jerusalem for Passover and then been trapped there and died from plague and famine. So you can imagine if there's not enough food and people are dying and you can't go out of the city, that bodies pile up. And then sickness gets spread. And so his estimate is 1.1 million. Uh, again, that is an ancient historian. So, you know, they didn't count the bodies. They're, it's a very general estimate. <laughs> and so I, that's all I'm going to say on that. Um, just for sake of time. The next one. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Um, This particular thing, many commentators are talking about how this seal is like a play on words because they would spill the blood of the sacrifices at the altar. And so it's like, the imagery is like the martyrs are 
underneath the altar where they would sacrifice the lambs, and that's where they're crying for blood. I want you to notice something that blood literally was spilt um, on the altar or around the altar at this time. When Titus heard of the fire, he ran to the temple. Um, this is actually after they took control of the city. He ran to the temple with his commanders and several legions and troops and tried to order the fire extinguished. The Roman troops either could not hear his command or chose to ignore it in the heat of the battle. Dead bodies lay heaped about the altar, and the pathway to it ran with blood. Um, we doubt, I doubt that many of these were Christians. There's possible that maybe there was a few, but the re- most of them, um, Jesus actually warned people you know, to leave. <laughs> it's possible maybe some were converted at the time, or maybe some didn't obey. Uh, but all that is to say that a partial preterist would say that this destruction of the temple, it's talking about um, this was fulfilled very literally, that there were literally martyrs right around the um, right around the altar. The, la- the last seal that we're going to talk about today is the sixth seal. The seventh is just silence, which comes chapter 8. The last one is the earthquake, the sun and the moon, and, and, the, and, and all that. Um, so there's two things I want to read to you here from Josephus. During the Feast of Pentecost, the priest came into the inner court and at night felt the earth tremble. So he notes this, and then he also says this. A star resembling a comet stood over the city for a whole year at this time. Very strange, <laughs> really weird. Um, that he would note these things. But the reality is is that a partial preterist would say, hey, look, a lot of these things were talking about the destruction of the temple. And they fit. I mean, they fit remarkably well um, for this one. We, re- we literally have basically one historian talking about these things in detail. And it basically hits all the, all the pieces. Um, and so you could see how uh, people could really believe this. Um, and, and I understand it. Now, I'm not going to do this for every, you don't have to worry, I'm not going to do this for every single one of these. Um, I just went through in detail on that one, just so you kind of get of a feel that these aren't, it's not really a big stretch to see some of these connections here, that they're right there for the taking. So that's partial preterist view of this passage. Uh, Next, I'm going to cover historicists. So imagine that same chart and just use your imagination and fill in all the details just so I don't have to go for like two hours today. (laughs) Um, But just trust me that people have a bunch of examples that are remarkably accurate. You know, it's like, wow, this seems to really fit well. And what the historicists believe is basically Revelation is not just this one short period, but it's predicting all of history. And this is actually a really common view. Like a lot of the Puritans had this view. And um, this was, if you did a chart of maybe like, when the view, which view was most common, this would have been the most common for a really long time. Um, and so basically it's saying that Revelation is predictions over a really long period of time. And as you can imagine, you know, second, third, fourth century people, they fit the events from first, second, third century, and they spread it out in Revelation. And then as the years got longer and longer, they kept spreading it out more and more. And eventually, you know, the, the Puritans are talking about the Pope is this part. And, and so basically the timing keeps changing. Um, at, because history keeps getting longer, but they basically say Revelation is predicting all of history up until the end of the age. And so, what one um, again? I'm loop, I'm lumping like large categories who probably disagree into like one easy summary. So not every thing I say applies to every person who believes these things. So 
there's my caveat on that. So one historicist view basically goes through the emperors, and they say, okay, first, the first seal's Caligula, and this, and this, and this, and this, you know, and it fits. <laughs> yeah, it fits. It fits well. And then the seventh, the, the, all the way through all the different uh, seals until they get to the seventh seal of silence, and they say that silence in the last seal is peace, and that's the emperor Constantine. And that's what Jesus, you know, Christ was predicting here. And they find examples that really do fit. I mean, it's not um, a really a stretch. And so that's what they would say. And then they would do that with this whole book of Revelation. That's a historicist view. It's predicting pieces of history. The futurist view is actually quite easy to talk about because basically they're saying, this hasn't happened yet. And this is going to be right at the very end of history. And there's lots of different theories on what this would look like. But one that I think I could go through really quickly, and you could imagine this, is, okay, this is talking about a nuclear bomb, and it's going to go off. And what's going to happen? There's going to be famines. There's going to be, um, wa- there's going to be obviously, wars. That's what starts you know, somebody dropping a bomb. And then they go into all these details about what scientists say would happen if a bomb got dropped, or, or like 10 or 20 or however many it would be for a, atomic war, then this much dust would be in the air, then the crops would die, then there would be beasts, you know, running around um, and because a bunch of people would die from not being having enough food and then there would be all this sickness and so basically they fit a future thing into all these things and it's like, well, yeah, that probably all these would happen <laughs> if, uh, you know, we had an atomic war or whatever. I'm not going to go into all the details on that, but just say like, yeah, that. You could go through and say, like, yeah, that seems like that probably would happen. Okay, so that would be a futurist view, and that's not, everyone doesn't believe that. Um, They could have different interpretations, but basically they would find something to fit with these. Then there's the last view uh, that I want to talk about, and it's called the symbolic view. Many times these are amillennialists. So basically what the symbolic view would say is that this is just talking about the end of the age from Christ until he returns and that these things are going to be happening constantly and that the reason that it fits in the first century and in the second century and in the third century and the fourth all the way on and even imagining what it could be like in the future, the reason it fits is because that's what it was meant to be. It was meant to fit the whole time, the whole period from Jesus' resurrection to the end of the age, which is you know, we're living in the last days. And so the reason they fit remarkably well is because they were supposed to. Um, that Christ is trying to prepare us, yes, first century people, but also second century people and third century, all the way to the last generation, prepare us for his coming. And prepare us, like we said, the main application is that we're not surprised, that we know that Christ is in control, that, and yet we still cry for him to come. And so... They would say, yeah, they would say amen to all those because basically, yeah, it does fit the first century and yeah, it does fit Caligula and yeah, it does fit, you know, all these uh, eras because it was meant to and that it wasn't talking about anyone specific but all, just general signs. Now, one objection that immediately comes to mind is this sounds so much like the destruction of the world. Um, so, like, the stars going dark and things like that. That surely this is talking about, it's not talking about things going on right now. 
but I want you to notice one kind of sh- little thing here. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Isaiah 13. It's a little bit difficult, but I'm just trying to give you a good overview of some of these things. This is actually a prophecy about Babylon, and it uses very the destruction of Babylon, um, and it uses very similar imagery here of... Um, signs in the heavens this is 13.1 I'm going to start there the oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw and then I'm going to jump to verse 9 behold the day of the Lord comes with cruel wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity I will put to the end the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And then I'm going to jump to verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. I'm going to jump to verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms and the splendor and the pop of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And so what uh, an amillennial or a a person who believes these things are symbolic would say is basically that, you know, the stars falling from the sky and the sun going dark, these are poetic ways of talking about great and important things are going to be shaken. There's going to be great upheaval. And it may be literal. I mean, there may be, um, like there was with Jesus, a star or something like that. Um, but it, it's not actually talking about, like, all the stars in the universe going dark. And they would point to this as an example. Well, here's Babylon, the destruction of Babylon with, for the, the Medes, and we know exactly when that was, but we still have stars, you know. Um, so there's actually, you know, points and counterpoints, but I'm just trying to give you a feel for this. Okay. Now, to tie it all back to what we talked about at the beginning and try and sum up here. Jesus said at the very beginning, we already read the blessed statement at the beginning, but the blessed statement that's at the very end of Revelation is this. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy in this book. You can see the similarities there. We want to do our best to understand these things. There's a lot of different views. And I think people are genuinely, from every different camp, are genuinely trying to obey the Lord, to honor the Lord, and understand these things. But what for us? Um, I have a lot of sympathy myself, personally. This is just my opinion. You don't have to believe this. I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for the preterists um, and the amillennial, basically. Um, the, I have a lot of sympathy for all of them, but I would lean that direction, that they fit so well the first century because Jesus really wanted to warn them. But they also fit for all of us um, because he wanted to help every single person. That's one thing that really pushes me towards this is that for the futurist and for the historicist, many of these things um, would be very hard for us to apply throughout the ages. That What would it mean for the first, second, third century Christian um, to hear and keep these things if the point was maybe just to decode the signs all at the very last generation. Um, it's possible, but it makes me think more of this, um, the amillennial view that God was preparing every generation, 
and that we don't know when it's going to come. In fact, you know, Matthew 24 says we, we don't know. We're not going to know the day or the hour, um, that we just need to be ready, and that the things he talked about in Matthew 24 actually happened in the first century. <laughs> and so he's wanting Christians to be ready to meet the Lord and people in general to be ready to meet the Lord from first century to now. And we're not going to know the specific the day or the hour, but we need to be ready um, to suffer for Christ, to trust Christ in the midst of suffering, and if you're not a Christian, to repent and to come to know him because it could be tomorrow. Um, we don't know how many days that we have. And if it's, if it's not his returning, one day we all die. And it, it, the same point remains the same, that we need to be thinking about eternity. And so what do I want you to take away from this? Um, several things I've already said but I'm going to add a couple more I think we should avoid the danger of spending our whole spending an exorbitant amount of time um, on looking in the news and trying to figure out is this Russia is this you know this leader and the reason is, like I said, I, I think if, if we're trusting Jesus, we're hitting all these main points, we're ready whether it rushes, you know, the little horn later on or whether it's not. Whether whatever political person coming up the ranks is the Antichrist or not, no matter what, we're going to be ready. And the reality is, is that many times it seems like this has become a distraction from the real main issues. But also we want to have unity. We want to have unity with Christendom, the church in the world. Um, we want to be able to relate to any person from any of these because there really are Christians who believed all these different things um, genuinely. And we don't want to cut ourselves off from them. Historically, if you read you know, church history, as well as people in Kirksville, um, there's churches. I'm, I would be very surprised if we didn't have you know, all these in different churches in Kirksville. And so I just want you to know and be prepared most of all, for Jesus to come, <laughs> right? Um, and so, trust Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. Trust that he knows what's going on. Whether there is an atomic bomb, <laughs> whether we live through a war, whether atomic bombs get dropped or we don't, whether, you know, Russia comes and tries to conquer us or they don't, whether persecution of Christians in, in America starts in our generation or not, we want to be ready. And be ready to suffer and trust the Lord no matter what comes and know that he's in control. But we don't want to spend our life trying to figure out the future. Um, Jesus knows, and we can trust him. And that's one of the reasons we don't have to obsess or worry or spend you know, all this time figuring these things out is because we know that Jesus knows. And we know that he'll lead us and guide us wherever he puts us through. I'm going to read you a verse from Mark here as we close. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge 
each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. It could be tomorrow. Are you ready to meet the Lord? That would be glorious. It would be wonderful. But it would be fearful as well. There's a mixture of joy and sorrow. Joy in seeing the Lord and being right with him. Sorrow for those who don't know him. For the final door being closed. Uh, The time of opportunity for repentance. That door being shut. And the judgment coming. It's the reality for for all of us. Every single one of us will face a mini uh, tribulation or you know they call it the parousia, the, you know the appearing of Christ. It's going to happen to all of us. Well, some of us are going to go to Him, <laughs> but He's going to appear before us, and we're going to have to give an account either way. And so the reality is we want to be prepared. We want to, you want to know the Lord. You want to be trusting Him. And we want to be living in light of that, in light of the fact that we're living in the last days. How does that look for us? How do we apply this? Well, we already talked about this, but you know, the other thing we might say is, what about people around us? You know, are there, is there opportunities to be a light, to be a witness? Is there opportunities to share your, the hope that you have? And that's one thing I want to kind of tie in as we close is I would be hesitant if whatever your view is, whatever view you take, if it actually hinders you from living out what Christ has called us to do, how Christ has called us to live in the world. You know, for example, like Philippians talks about, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. If your view gets you anxious, constantly anxious about, you know, the atomic bomb could drop tomorrow. Something's not right there. Whether that's in your heart, uh, it definitely is in your heart, but whether that is, whatever the cause of that is. I wish I could, I feel like I'm not saying this the way, the best way I possibly could. Whatever the result of your views are, just examine, does that fit in line with Scripture? Is this causing me to trust Christ more? Is this robbing me of my affection for Christ and my effectiveness in the world? Or is this actually uh, causing me to trust Christ? Um, that What I don't want to happen is we get so focused out here that actually not only we lose focus of these things, but it actually, it actually is doing the opposite. We're trusting Jesus less. <laughs> We're more anxious. We're more worried about the end of the world than when Christ is saying the opposite. We don't need to be worried because he's in control. We don't need to be anxious because we can trust him. And so just something to really think about. I hope this is informative. Uh, I hope that um, those of you who are asleep, will you can uh, wake up now and we can eat our meal or whatever. But I hope it's helpful. Um, I just... I wanted to wade in a little bit so you could kind of get a feel. And also, when you meet somebody, that you'll kind of understand, be able to understand where they're coming from. And also, just be thankful that what we're going through now in our life, as we look back in church history, it's not unique. And in fact, um, first century Christians lived through 
very difficult times. And they made it through. And God blessed them and helped them and encouraged them as they were put in the, you know, the Colosseum and, and fed to the lions. And as they, Christians lived through the bubonic plague and you know, a third of, of the people died in Europe and things like that, they made it through. And God helped them and God was with them. And God preserved them. And God preserved their hearts even as well. Um, and their witness. And so we want to look through all the difficulties and look beyond and remember who's in control and trust him. All right, well, why don't we pray and then we're just, we'll be dismissed. Father, we're just looking to you and we're thankful that you give us your word, that you're gracious with us. Thankful that you're in control. Uh, we do pray that we would live different um, because of what you are and what you've done, uh, that we would be, we would have peace in the midst of difficulty, faith in the midst of trial, and um, we just want to know you, and we want to honor you where we are, and whether you come back tomorrow or whether you tarry another thousand years, we are wanting to be faithful and do what you'd have us to do, so please help us. Please be guiding us by your Spirit. You said you would be a voice behind us saying, this is the way of walking it, and you wouldn't let us go to the right or to the left. And so we're looking to you for guidance in the midst of our lives on what you would have us to do um, every day. And so we need help. Help us to be good fathers and mothers and children and Christians and friends um, each day. Um, we just need your help to be faithful, and so we're looking to you. We're also thankful that you're in control and we don't have to figure out um, all the geopolitics and all that that you know, um, and we're thankful that you you do. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.